Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Max Haven and I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University. And I'm Aris Komporoso Sapanasu, and I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. My name is Adam Kingsmith, and I'm a PhD candidate in politics at York University. This episode, we're joined by Jess Marcotte, uh, who is a writer, designer, and maker with an interest in critical reflective design from a queer intersectional feminist point of view. They're one of the co-founders of Soft Chaos, a worker cooperative designing uh, interactive experiences, the lead co-designer of the Queerness and Games Conference, and hold a recent doctorate from Concordia University's individualized program with a focus on critical interaction, design, and games. Today, we'll be discussing some of uh, Jess's recent work and, and recent thinking, uh, and we'll, we'll sort of share the links for some of that. And it, it's my pleasure to, to welcome you to our program. Uh, I first encountered some of Jess's work online and I thought it'd be really exciting to, to bring them on and, and you know, talk about some of their ideas on the show. And so I just kind of wanted to open with a really general question. If you could maybe describe some of the games you've designed or created and, and maybe you can kind of build from, from there. I'd just love to hear some, some general thoughts on that. Sure. Um, so when I started to make games, it was sort of by accident and uh, I, have a background as a writer, but I didn't have like the typical uh, game making skills necessarily. And that immediately pushed me into sort of designing these works that had to find other solutions than like being extremely complex programmatically. So I found an interest in like alternative controllers uh, and theater and bringing like humanness uh, to, to like the screen or like taking away the screen entirely. Uh, and, and moving into like more experimental, uh, like art game territory, I think. Um, and so, so yeah, the, the kinds of things that I design, uh, some keywords uh, I think are often like awkwardness, uh, intimacy, uh, vulnerability, uh, and like community. Um, and so, yeah, what's, what's important to me is usually making sure that, that players are in a position to take care of themselves uh, and to take care of each other. Um, yeah, I'd say that that sort of summarizes like, like, a, like a major design ethos for, for me. Um, so I've designed, I, I've done a lot of jams because I find jams uh, to be like a pretty decent way of just getting something out there and uh, experimenting uh, in like a low stakes kind of way and like pushing pushing skills in, in, a, in an environment where like non-commercial or like uh, broken things are, are kind of expected. Uh, so I've made many, many games. Um, most recently, uh, my doctoral projects uh, focused on a kind of game I call hybrid games. Uh, and in a nutshell, these are like alternative controller games, but moving beyond just like the focus on like controller uh, as like the main side of like alternativeness, uh, I would say. Um, so these are games where I ask people to play with puppets uh, and like talk about their feelings, but they're also games where I built a tricorder, 
type of type of controller and you get to move around and explore a space uh, while you're being observed by other people and they're trying to like interrupt you and like see what's up with you and, and like uh, to explore like a feeling of otherness. Um, or uh, like most recently games that like can be played via Discord or on the internet, uh, but that still like connect people uh, like through through these times. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, and I guess this this kind of ties in perfectly this this next question um, because I know that this concept of like reflective game design is a really important part of your work. And I was hoping that you could maybe talk to us a little bit about reflective game design as a critical practice. What drew you to the approach, and maybe kind of contrast it or compare it a bit to like affirmative game design and what it's trying to do there that's novel or, or different. Hmm. So uh, reflective game design is sort of like a series of like, like the, the best way to summarize it, it's like a series of statements that like we can ask about uh, what we're making. Uh, so like full disclosure, uh, one of the reasons that I came into contact with it is because uh, the person who like uh, developed it and applied it to game design uh, was my uh, PhD supervisor, uh, Dr. Rilla Khaled. Uh, and so it's, it's things like, Design patterns uh, is what is what she calls them. Things like uh, questions over answers, or like reflection over immersion, or um, you know questions around discomfort uh, over uh, like over trying to to make something that's uh, solely about entertainment or solely about like the experience of play, uh, and. I think like it, it immediately appealed to, yeah, like like my sense of um, playfulness and working outside of uh, best practices. So uh, some of the early design influences that I came into contact with, like one of my first game design teachers uh, was uh, Pippin Barr. Uh, and Pippin's work, uh, is, is often like very like pointed and playful, but in a very irreverent way. Uh, and I, yeah, it, it really appealed me, to me to try and make games uh, and focus on design work that moved outside of uh, like accepted norms uh, and like what games were already doing. Um, I'm not sure that I've answered your question though. No, I think I think that was that was great. Right. Yeah, and, and perhaps I could follow up uh, um, on on this actually um, in terms of and I wanted to ask you about the concept of a critical play in relation to reflective game design. Mm -hmm. um, so, if you could tell us a bit about how you see it connected to to reflective game design, and um, also relatedly how you think that as a concept it maps onto the dichotomy. Um, that was set, uh, set up by James Scarce's uh, finite and uh, infinite games. Mm -hmm. so, so Critical Play, this, uh, this is, is like a book by Marie Flanagan, uh, just for, for listeners, uh, that explores sort of like um, experimental art traditions uh, and then connects them to games and then connects them up to uh, like, common, like common ways of designing things. Uh, and one of the major differences, I think, is just the tradition of literature. So reflective game design comes out of the concept of reflective design, 
which comes out of uh, critical design literature. So uh, that's that's people uh, who are working in like human computer interaction uh, and um, industrial design uh, more so than games or uh, art necessarily. Although, you know, so it's, it's just two traditions uh, and uh, Flanagan doesn't really connect up to, to that literature, but that's sort of where reflective design comes in. Um, and what I, what I sort of, what I wish uh, Critical Play did uh, was give like more concrete examples of how Marie Flanagan would design like a game for Critical Play. Uh, she does explore sort of games that do um, like this sort of critical game design. But when it comes to the, the practical part, like the methodology for designing a critical game, uh, I have to admit I was a little disappointed because uh, sort of there's, there's this, little, this little map, it's like this little circle of design where like you, you think about what you want to design and then you design it and then you iterate on it and it's like this little loop. Uh, and then like the critical play loop is, is, is the exact same thing uh, in her book, except it adds like, plus think about your values. And I'm like, okay, um, that's uh, that, like, give me a little more, please. Um, later on, uh, there's a follow-up book, uh, Values at Play, uh, that, that expands a little bit more on that, but it sort of lacks like that tangible, like, um, like practitioner focus, like this is how I did it. Like, this is like the, the, like, uh, the, the exact methodology. Uh, it's sort of like high level and like very surface level, um, I would say. Uh, so reflective design is like a little more actionable or at least that, that's, that's, that's been my experience with it. We were reading and uh, were really fascinated by your your piece on controllers and what it means to queer controllers and the idea of controllers. Uh, and I wanted to ask you if you can share with our listeners a little bit about that and and also how like how the working with and experimenting with controllers uh, moves us outside of some of the kind of heteronormative, uh, patriarchal, capitalist, white supremacist notions of like that, that undergird the, the kind of um, video game industry in its hegemonic <laughs> instance as well. Uh, and, and how that maybe um, treats players differently and approaches players differently. Um, yeah. So, so I think like maybe a good place to start is like with queerness. And uh, this is like, you know, this is this is like the meat of like uh, queer studies. Like you have to start with that. Like, but but like, what the heck is it? You know, like how like how do we define this? And like the answer, in a nutshell, is kind of like it's it's always like a moving target that's like offsides or like um, Sarah Ahmed calls it like oblique to like the status quo. So uh, the way that I see queerness is about like desires about our bodies and the bodies of others. Not necessarily sexual or sensual, but sometimes yes. Uh, and like like this this sort of like, yeah, this this coming at things from like an odd angle or an oblique angle. Uh, so it's it's a little bit uh, difficult to pin down, but 
but uh, like Anne-Marie Jagos, uh, who is another uh, theorist is like, that's, that's part of the point. Like the definitional indeterminacy of queerness is like part of what like uh, makes it special. And like the, the difficult part of that is that, uh, you know, you come up with this, like you come to this point where it's like, well, can like, is everything queer? Is nothing queer? Like, how do we like define that limit? Uh, and it really becomes like a moment to moment, like question of practice uh, and question of like the, the work in its context, uh, rather than like pointing to something and being like, that's queer uh, and that's not queer. Uh, although I'd, I'd say that at the same time, if somebody says like, I am queer and this is my queer work, uh, like that also, you know, like come on in, like that, that counts too. Um, so, so yeah, uh, when it, when it comes to control, I think that like, uh, the idea of like being in control and being powerful and, you know, leveling up and like growing stronger and like, um, being like the, the person with like the most agency, uh, in a game is like a, a pretty common, uh, design pattern. Uh, and so like, that's, that's something that, uh, Maddie Bryce, uh, writes, uh, like really, really well about, about like, like power fantasies in games. Uh, and so when we, when we talk about playing with control, we're talking about playing with agency. We're talking about playing with who has the power. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting, uh, about like working with control and controllers and like interfaces um, and ways of like mediating between the player uh, and the game. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's really, really interesting. I love the work that you, that you do thinking about controllers, you know, something that I honestly like, as someone who plays lots of games, I, I didn't think so much about like the perspective of the controller, designing the controller, programming the controller, and sort of some of your stuff about like Kind of non-mass produced controllers and like the kind of tactility of that and the materiality of that is just so so wonderful and such a different way of, of thinking about a lot of this stuff um and I, I guess i wanted to kind of again continuing on in that vein your article kind of in game studies you, you have this really interesting uh turn where you talk about like the procedural rhetoric of games and you talk about them as structures that facilitate play and encourage certain actions over others so in essence the rules of the game contain arguments so to speak and I, and I guess I would love to get your thoughts because, you know, we've been reading a lot more stuff in, in the literature and in the media about like conspiracy theories and things like QAnon as adventure games and as things where people are sort of solving puzzles in their community, unraveling clues. And, you know, it really coheres around like a certain group. And, and so if you maybe had some thoughts on like, what, what do you think of this concept of the procedural rhetoric of a game in relation to things like conspiracy theories or something like QAnon? Is there, is there a procedural rhetoric to that maybe that we could try and map on a little bit using some of your work on games? Yeah, I think absolutely. Like the short answer is like, yes, like it makes perfect sense to, to think about this in that way. Um, be, before we, we started talking today, uh, you know, we've had some earlier conversations and I was I was thinking about like other instances where that's the case, but where it's not quite so um, awful. <laughs> and I was like, oh, like fandom kind of operates this way. Uh, like I was thinking of uh, BTS and ARMY. They, they had like a, like a single that launched last night and like within like five minutes, like, you know, people were like, you know, had transcribed the lyrics and like were uh, like analyzing them, uh, you know, like this, this 
this huge group of people that like share this one thing in common and then like mobilize around it. Um, but like, there's like a kind of like self-regulation that goes on um, that like gives some group cohesion. Like, uh, you know, uh, you know, BTS like donates money to a cause, ARMY's like, well, we're gonna match it. Or like, and then they like, you know, get together and do the thing or it's like, oh, like, you know, there's specific kind of behavior that's like, you know, uh, not tolerated well in the fandom. So there is like this kind of similar, I think, group think and like this kind of similar like um, regulation of like insider outsider status, but in a like a different way. Uh, and I think like, yeah, like it makes so much sense uh, to, to think about like, um, you know, I think one of the rules of QAnon, like once you're like a little layer deep, right, is like anybody who tells you that like QAnon is not a thing is like, you know, kind of an enemy agent uh, who is lying to you, like, you know, uh, is, is like part of the conspiracy. So anything that like, um, like would attack the conspiracy is part of the conspiracy. Um, and like, you know, the the social social reward of play uh, is huge. Like that's, yeah, like that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's obviously like a, like a very uh, important part of this, I think. So, um, I, th I think it's absolutely the case that like, yeah, it maps well onto like MMORPGs and like all sorts of like different, uh, like different mechanics that we see in games. Yeah, I think this is fascinating and it's quite central to our ongoing conversations in this project around uh, trying to understand the world of conspiracies as uh, through the lens of, of gaming and, and uh, especially like you say, the kind of social rewards of, of play and the kind of communities that coalesce around, around gaming. Um, and I wanted to ask you about a different, to sort of go on the other side of this, um, of the conspiracy, of the QAnon type of conspiracy game um, to attempt to deploy gaming uh, logics uh, and principles to fight uh, conspiracies like QAnon. So, and what I have in mind is a particularly fascinating such attempt. Um, this, the game, the, the intervention called Harmony Square, mm -hmm. um, in which um, it, sponsored by the US government, which was a, an attempt to gamify inoculation theory in order to introduce the players that that engage with that game to to expose them to political misinformation and conspiracy uh, and and in that sense to to make them more resilient to it um, which i actually played a bit myself and uh, i have some thoughts on it but i would love to hear from you how, what you make of that kind of intervention so so i think like any game with learning goals uh like it's it's uh it's a like well-known or like this is like a common theory is that like any if you want somebody to learn something uh you need them to be able to connect it up to their real world context and knowledge uh and like one of the like shortcuts to doing that uh is through something like debriefing so this is uh like maybe drawing back to uh reflective game design like this pattern of like reflection over immersion so like 
you know, uh, if the goal is to learn math and it's a super fun game and then you like play this game for a long time, uh, but you never like get shown like the math skills that you use in a con in the context where you actually have to use them or nobody's ever like, hey, like this thing in this game is like the thing that you're trying to do in your day to day life. Uh, it's unlikely that you'll learn as effectively from it. So uh, I, I haven't played Harmony Square, but I did read about it. And uh, like, I would be curious to see like how they employed like explicit uh, reflection and like breaking the immersion to connect up. So this is like very common um, in like simulation studies uh, or in uh, LARP, uh, you know, like this, this like reflection to process the information that you've learned um, after you finish playing the game. Uh, so like debriefing um, is like a, is pretty central to my practice. Like like it's it's something that like uh, especially with, with dealing with um, like topics that can be very difficult uh, or topics that are like complex or that may leave people with residual feelings. Uh, like this is like you know uh, like a standard best practice uh, to like take care of the player. Um, and I think like in the same way, it's important for any kind of learning game to like to make use of that. Um, so like, yeah, like I think, I think that kind of game is great, but I, yeah, I, I'm like, sort of like, you know, um, are, are we making sure that it's connected up to like the, the real world context effectively and explicitly? Yeah. And, and just to follow up very quickly, um, I, I think what you just, on what you just said about, are we making sure that we connect it to the real world and how we do so, um, I, I think I also read about it and then I tried to play it and I was quite, um, I mean, I found myself not confirming the author's um, sort of uh, announced, pronounced results that they, that, that had had those fantastic effects and people who played it who then were inoculated and they would, they, they stopped, they were less, significantly less likely to, to believe in conspiracies. I found myself, uh, quite keen on trying to sabotage the kind of liberal square that the, these, this game was presenting to us as this beautiful marketplace of ideas of, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, Clintonite, you know, centrist type of political space. I found myself quite keen to disrupt that actually. So, so it had that effect on me. I'm not, so I'm not, it's, I'm interested in what you say about, yeah, how then that, what they presented links with with the real world. Um, oh no, have you have you learned how, how to build your own QAnon? <laughs> like your own? <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 I'll, let, um, I'll, I'll let Adam and Max ask more questions, but yeah, I think there is something to this in like, mm -hmm. what kind of counter games we can, we can create that engage a bit more radically with, with the kind of um, issues that th these this kind of intervention purportedly addresses. Yeah, I think people don't leave themselves at the door when they play a game, like they bring their their experiences to it. And so like, yeah. that's that's where the debrief comes in because you, you don't know how somebody is like taking your game or like what experiences they bring to it that like might block them or facilitate them having certain experiences. Like there's a huge amount of ambiguity there. And like productive ambiguity, but it needs to be addressed. Yeah, I just, and I just want to ask this really quickly. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Max. Just because Aris, I know you mentioned it a little bit, and I, I didn't 
put it in the, in the questions at all, but I know you use it in your, in your work a bit, just this concept of like counter games and counter gaming. And, you know, that's a big part of our framing. We're really interested in like, you know, creating different kinds of alternative games as a form of counter game, as a form of like the critique of the game or trying to do something a bit different uh, with the gamifying. And so what do you, maybe, what do you just make of this concept, you know, as a game designer yourself and, and what do you see about it that's maybe productive or interesting or, or what have you? I mean, uh, I, I guess like, uh, that's, that's an interesting question, but I guess I'm like, not sure of like, what do you mean when you say like, what do I think of the concept? Like, it's like, it is, it is a thing and it is a thing people do. Uh, like it, I think it, um, like, you know, it has its place, like, and I think it connects up to like modding and like resisting uh, like, you know, the, the mainstream. Um, but, but yeah, I, maybe I need like a bit more, uh, context there. No, th that's fair. I mean, I, and I just want, yeah, and wanted to get a sense of even just like, how do you, like, how does the term even be operationalized? You know, what does it mean to counter game, to make a counter game, to do counter gaming? Cause I just see lots of different definitions and interpretations. So it'd just be nice to get kind of even just your thoughts on like, you know, what does it mean to do that, to make counter games and yeah. Hmm. I think like to, like, it's not, it's, it's a term that I think um, I, I, ta I talk about in relation to uh, Teddy Pozo's work. Uh, and that's like a lot about uh, like, yeah, like modding practices uh, or, um, you know, taking, taking something that exists uh, and like breaking it a little bit or like modifying it. Um, yeah, uh, but but yeah, I don't think it's something I can speak to uh, like very much. Um, I suppose one of the things that uh, as we kind of move towards the the nearest the end of the interview, I wanted to ask you about is the role uh, and how you think about community in in gaming. Uh, one of the things we've been thinking about quite a bit is the way that conspiratorial thinking offers a lot of people who are in its grip uh, a sense of community, even if they don't necessarily, they've never met the people uh, that they might be uh, talking with online. Um, and and the, the community can be quite anxious and quite un, unhappy at times, but it still offers a sense that there's a we and we're in it together. And, and there's been a number of interesting sort of commentaries on on the way that that sense of community uh, is kind of um, a, a great comfort in a time of increased alienation. Um, and it strikes me reading about and, and hearing about your practice of game design, and, and you mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation, that that sort of community and care, vulnerability, um, the kind of awkwardness of making ties with one another is really central. So you, you are coming at community from a very different uh, perspective. Um, and I, I just wondered if you could talk about that a bit. And <laughs> and what the role of that is in contemporary uh, game design and, and especially queer game design and queer game design that seeks to disrupt or, yeah. So, so I think like um, when I think about community, I think about temporary community. Uh, so like I, you know, when people come together for like a specific purpose, like around something uh, like bounded in time, uh, I think there's like, there can be like this sort of temporary uh like suspension of like the rules or like a temporary sort of um 
like beautiful space uh, that can exist. So I think about QGCon a lot when I think about community. So it's like, uh, you know, it's it's like this little like bubble pocket dimension of queerness that exists for like three days and it goes away. Uh, but like while you're in that time, you're like moving together in a community that like looks like you in some way or like that you share uh, like some things in common with. Um, and, and so like, yeah, um, I think like long-term management of a community, um, I think like the, this like, yeah, like it's important for me that there be like kind of a lead in and a lead out for my work because it's a lot of responsibility to uh, like take care of a community longer term. So like what kinds of interactions people have in between the times when they come together as a community uh, is like very complex uh, and like can be very, very difficult. Um, when I, when I think about, um, you know, uh, this in the context of something like QAnon conspiracy theory or like, uh, like online, like harassment campaigns, I, I immediately think of Gamergate. Like I immediately am like, oh, like, yeah, like you can, like, there's like this direct line between, uh, like coming together around like games, games belong to a specific demographic and like a specific people. Uh, and then like these, um, these, these like harassment games, like, you know, like these, these, like, uh, like these, uh, AR, uh, like targeting of people and like tracing down information and like feeling like you're like a hacker or like some kind of, uh, like, yeah, secret agent or, uh, like, a yeah, like a, a part of a community, like working toward a purpose together, uh, you know, with a, with like a chosen enemy uh, in a way. Um, and I think like when there is unhappiness, I think we also see this like in larger like uh, socio-political contexts, right? Like we see like a, a like like an othering happens uh, and like we, we choose scapegoats and we other people so that there can be like a, like a common ground, like a common um, like easy to see target that, uh, you know, um, fascists primarily will like try to unite people around and like fight against. Uh, and I think, I think that's like, you know, the, like a dark side of community that like, uh, it's very troubling, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. And it, it struck me too, that like the, the kind of community formations around, a lot of the recent far-right conspiratorialism has been profoundly, like profoundly heteropatriarchal um, and really like based on a, a kind of ideology of wanting to return, allegedly return us to some alleged prior moment where, you know, um, the world worked as it ought to have worked and trans and queer and uh, people disappeared and feminism was abolished and, you know, white supremacy reigned. And it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's very deeply disturbing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. You know, I just, I just wanted to maybe ask one last question. Uh, what, what games are you working on right now? What are you, what are you designing right now? And maybe, how does that connect to this conversation or not connect at all? Just, just curious what you're up to. Oh, well, uh, there are two, two main projects that I'm working on, like uh, game projects, because I'm currently finalizing uh, my worker co-op. We have our constitution, uh, we're writing our bylaws. So that's, that's you know, taken up uh, a chunk of time. 
uh, the two game projects that I'm working on. The first uh, is a game called Strangers on the Net. Uh, and this is a game that we did a run of uh, last year. It's a game about uh, what it was like to be a teen on the internet in the 90s. Uh, and like, what, what did you believe then that you would sort of cringe at and like, how does it compare to what you believe now? How did you, how did you change? Uh, um, in the context of uh, like the the common goal in the game is like a uh, role play around a fandom uh, while you're like exploring like who who this like fictionalized teen version of yourself is uh, and then like yeah who who you are now. Uh, and the other game is sort of like a secret sexy queer game uh, about like uh, like like exploring an alien planet. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that's all I'll say about that one though. Can I jump in with a, just a quick question because I'm so excited to hear you say that you're forming this workers cooperative and uh, yeah, it's it, it, the game industry, it's not really one of our focuses but it's been sort of uh, well known for its exploitative practices. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to add, just invite a quick comment on uh, yeah, how what what motivated you folks to set up such a cooperative and uh, where it, where it's headed and what you'd say to other uh, and aspiring uh, game designers about finding different methods of collaboration and cooperation. I, I would love to see the industry work towards uh, like more co-op models, uh, you know, uh, glory society, co-op mode, uh, soft not weak, uh, lucid tales here in Canada. Well, co-ops also in Canada. Uh, like there like are more and more. Uh, and I think what's like amazing about them is that, yeah, they, they put the decision-making power uh, in the hands of the people who are doing the work uh, and like, you know, I, what drew us toward it, like literally what we have written in our exploit, in, in our application form, we ha they have to be like, well, why make a co-op instead of making a corporation? Like what makes you want to uh, like make a co-op? And it's like, well, <laughs> the industry is very exploitative. The pay doesn't compare to similar industries. Uh, and also uh, like we're like queer and people of color in, and that's like, D doubly worse uh, in in the industry. So like yeah, like that's that's sort of like how we had to justify it to the Canadian government that like there was a need for us to take our work into our own hands. Uh, and I would say that like uh, if you're in Quebec, uh, there's lots of really great support, uh, and like making a co-op is fairly easy uh, compared to some places. So, so depending where you are, the rules are very different. But there's lots of support, uh, and uh, you can feel to feel free to reach out to me if you like want access to some of those resources. Uh, like I would be happy to connect people with uh, other folks who are trying to start workers co-ops uh, and who are like you know going through the the various uh, bureaucratic processes uh, sort of together, even if they're not the same everywhere. Thank you so much for for joining us today. All right, well, thanks for having me. Well, yeah, a wonderful interview uh, with Jess and really, I think quite inspiring to hear uh, their vision of, and, and their practices of building games and using using games to build community and introspection and exploration in very different ways. Um, 
I wanted to come back in my closing comments to our quick discussion of Harmony Square, the game that was sort of designed uh, with the backing of the uh, a, a variety of funders in the US security establishment in order to teach people about um, the dangers of conspiratorial thinking and fake news and kind of online agitation. And I was thinking about that game as um, in a funny way, it was a game for the funders rather than a game for the players. Like it was a game that I, I couldn't, when I played it, I couldn't necessarily imagine uh, a lot of people just randomly on the internet, like starting to play it and learning a bunch from it. And I think Jess was really uh, wise to point out to us that like those who are really interested in persuasive games and the rhetorics of games that can be political and, and orient themselves towards notions of social justice, um, those do include a situation of debrief that allows people to step out of the game and reflect on it and reflect on what they've learned and associated with their own life. Whereas this game really felt like it was uh, like a bunch of organizations had a ton of money and they wanted to throw it at something that would allow them to put down on paper that they had made a good faith attempt to, uh, you know, support, you know, the, the war against disinformation. But I guess the point that I would make about that is that what that perhaps leads us to is a recognition that uh, funders and more generally all sorts of groups that proclaim themselves to have an interest in combating disinformation uh, and fake news and conspiratorialism, they themselves are playing a game. And, you know, there's a danger to extending the metaphor of the game to too broadly because not everything is a game and yet the other on the other hand everything is in a certain way a game so like maybe that game existed not to be played maybe that game is part of another game which is the game of these security apparatuses and you know to maybe return to something that Arun Kundani mentioned uh in in our interview with him um you know like it's part of a of a game of empire that's uh on the one hand plays a great game for the resources and fate of the world. Uh, the security establishment has, you know, uh, have been playing this game for a long time. And on the other hand, and, and that, and that in the course of the, especially the 20th century and now the 21st century, we have these security establishments that have been playing extremely dangerous games, war games in terms of planning nuclear wars, but also in the form of spreading disinformation, uh, in the form of the kind of propaganda that they, wars that they've waged both domestically within the United States and the kind of core imperial countries, but also around the world in terms of the defamation of especially Marxists, but not exclusively Marxist national liberation movements. So here we are, you know, a century after the beginning of this great game of American imperialism, to take the example of Harmony Square, we now have these same security apparatuses now asking us to play a game allegedly to teach us not to believe in disinformation. It's all a bit uh, rich, a little, a little bit priceless if you, uh, in a certain way. And so I'm curious on the one hand about the way that these games that claim to cure us from or help us heal from disinformation, propaganda, blah, 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 are in fact part of that game and then I'm also interested in the question of what it would take to move us beyond those kinds of games. And I think to wrap it up, um, Jess's uh, oeuvre of working on games that allow us to think about community differently, allow us to think about our bodies differently, allow us to think about our connection to one another 
and ourselves differently. That seems to me to be a really interesting space because it really cuts against the um, the kind of subject that is created by the kind of imperialist or Im imperial game that uh, that imagines that the player should always, you know, player one should always be this perfectly rational, perfectly controlled, perfectly uh, responsive subject uh, that is knowing and you know has a kind of um, perspective on the world that is one of domination. Yeah, and that actually makes me think, Max, that uh, in fact, just in the responses, even though they're, they're very humbly uh, said that they don't have very much to say about counter games, I think that in fact, in their descriptions of the kind of community, the queer game gamer community that they are helping put sort of shape, um, they do show us elements there of what counter gaming, what kind of features and practices counter gaming might entail. And I found that very interesting. And, and there were a couple of points, just to, to follow on from what you were saying, Max, about um, the, the kind of uh, what, what such a community might look like uh, in order to be, to offer an effective sort of uh, anti-conspiratorial alternative. And I think just pointing to one element that I want to point to, which uh, uh, which is the temporary element. So, so they spoke of a temporary community and of a bounded temporality uh, that is kind of um, uh, uh, under the care of the of the gamers, and that, that that caring for a community, they said, is a responsibility. And so, to think of a, a, a counter conspiratorial community as a um, as a static and, and durable uh, format in the way that we maybe used to think about community might actually not be the right way. So, there might, so I think there is something about that fluidity of that community that Jess described that is very interesting and, and perhaps it contains lessons for understanding how uh, a sense of togetherness can be can look differently and can be a bit more fluid and, and more embodied and, and still caring and responsible. So this is what I, I would keep from, from Jess's uh, answers as something quite vital in our attempt to map out what such um, effective, more radical communities might look like. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I, I think what I really enjoyed also about interviewing a game designer is, you know, I was reading up on all these different kinds of gaming concepts and getting a chance to think a lot about like the language that gamers use, you know? So again, things like we talked about the procedural rhetoric of games, but also like, and, and I think this touches on something that you've both mentioned, like the flow of a game and the flow state, right? Which is again, game designers describe it as like the mental embodiment of like being kind of plugged into the game, moving through the game. And again, like I honestly didn't reflect very much on the fact that, yeah, like most games, it's like this, the main character is this very like empowered agency, the, the strongest player in the game. You can do all these things, you know, and trying to really invert that and, and queer that and counter that by like not always emphasizing like the main thing you're designing has to be like the strongest player in the world or the dominant player in that world, I think is, is really interesting, you know, and talking about how you can, for me, kind of when they're talking about, you know, counter gaming and, and, and uh, game feel, and controlling it's again right it's, it's the designer has the opportunity to disorder or reorient the flow channel and i think that's a really 
interesting and cool way of thinking about it is again like how do we uh through things like you know like uh cooperatives and 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 how those are almost like material ways of doing that uh in a in a very practical sense uh, today in, in the industry i think that's really really interesting you've been listening to conspiracy games and counter games season two of the order of unmanageable risks a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties for more information about this podcast, to listen to other episodes, or to learn about the broader project of which it is a part, please visit www.conspiracy.games. We'll see you next time.